Welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I am your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my co-host, Dr. Tony Ricci. If you're a first-time listener, hit the subscribe button and like the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Rumble, and YouTube. Our special guest today is Dr. Jorn Trummelin. He earned his PhD, and I will butcher this name, at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Tony's probably laughing at me. Um, <laughs> Jorn Trommelin works as a I think you're still an assistant professor or an associate professor. I'm not sure. Yeah. Still assistant. assistant professor bringing the coffee to the other professors. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, so you're an assistant professor at the Department of Human Biology. Um, you're involved in research and education regarding the impact of exercise and nutrition on muscle mass and function. Um, your research is part of the M3 research group and focuses on exercise and nutritional interventions to augment Exercise performance adaptations in athletes. So, Jordan, I want to welcome to uh, welcome you to the Sports Science Dudes. Thank for you know, thank you for taking time out. I know the time zone difference is kind of a pain when you're in Europe and you know here, but you know we appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, let's start off um, one of my favorite topics: protein. And uh, you, re your group recently did that study looking at, I believe it was the supplementation of casein um, uh, post-exercise recovery. And um, I think the, the thing that surprised people most was the dosing, the 100-gram dose, and how you, you assess that there was an increase in and muscle protein synthesis over really a long period of time. Was it, I think it was 12 hours. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Explain a little bit about how you came up with the dosing. I think there was a zero grams, 25 grams and a hundred. And I know there are people online saying, why didn't you do 40 because there are 20 or whatever. I mean, I'm sure there are good reasons for choosing it. People who don't do research, oftentimes they'll just come up with random numbers and say, Hey, you should do a zero, a 20, a 40 and a hundred. I'm like, you know, this costs a lot of money. You can't just do every possible, you know, dosing. So explain how your group came up with the protocol um, and and summarize the results. Yeah, so uh, very small clarification. The study was not uh, casein. It was milk protein. Oh, uh, milk, okay. Milk protein is, of course, 80% uh, casein, but it's also 20% um, uh, whey protein. Um one of the reasons why we took milk protein is because it has the largest contribution to protein intake in the Western world. You know, whenever you do a study, people are always going to ask, what about this protein? What about that protein? Again, we picked the protein that has the largest contribution to protein intake in the Western world. So if anything, we have the most representative protein uh, because it simply has the biggest uh, contribution. Makes sense. Uh, but yeah, it, it does act like casein a lot. Um, so why this study? Well, uh, there have been quite some studies, including even one from our lab, dose response studies where different doses are compared. And uh, for a pretty long time, uh, I would say up until a month ago, it was very well accepted uh, that about 20 grams of protein, that's all you need in a single meal. Um, because your body simply can't use more for muscle protein synthesis, building off new new muscle tissue. And if you take more, the majority will be burned for fuel called oxidation. Uh, so how did uh, how did we come up with this uh, 
this study question. Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, one of them was uh, inspired by a barbecue. Uh, I remember that once I woke up, middle of the night, uh, I went to pee and I kind of had like a, let's call it a meat burp. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's like 10 hours ago since I ate all this meat, I just feel I'm still digesting it. And I'm like, there's no, like if it's still in my GI tract, how could it possibly have reached my muscle and be built into that? So I'm like, when you consume large doses of protein, it's not really fair if we do studies that are only a couple hours long. Like you have to give it a chance to digest and you know, reach your peripheral tissue. So that was one thing. Uh, that's of course like fun practical anecdote. I also looked at the data. Um, one thing that like initially I was kind of in the protein distribution camp that, you know, you need to distribute your protein throughout the day to basically have the highest efficiency of your protein because the big meals most is wasted. Um, but studies didn't really show that. The majority of like longer term data didn't really support that pro protein distribution concept. And I was just thinking those studies are underpowered, uh, boring for the, for the listeners, but just not enough subjects to clearly come to the right conclusion. But then time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting became very popular. And that's a very extreme model of theoretically suboptimal protein distribution. Mm -hmm. And still, you didn't see differences in muscle mass. So I was like, if such a suboptimal distribution pattern, if you don't even see big differences there, like why are we arguing about four or five meals a day? Like something isn't adding up. And then the last part is just a very small part, but I guess it added to the to the larger body of evidence. In in nature, you have examples where, for example, snakes, they ate like 25% of their body mass uh, in a meal. So if, if you're like a 100 kilogram bodybuilder, that's like a meal of 25 kilograms. Good luck with that. Um, of course, that doesn't necessarily say something about humans, but at least somewhere in nature, there is this concept that if you eat a big meal, you can use it because they have done, it's pretty cool. They have done studies on these snakes and you see that they are digesting for like two weeks. Muscle protein synthesis is uh, elevated for two weeks. So for all these reasons, I just had the general ideas. When you give a large dose of protein, you need to give it a time to digest. You need to do studies that measure long enough to give the protein the chance to reach to the muscle. And that's what all these previous studies didn't do. Now, your other question, why the 0, 25, and 100 gram uh, dose? Uh, yeah, just to be blunt, uh, this study is absurdly expensive. Like we, I won't bore you with the details, but we used the most amount of tracers built into the milk protein. Like just the 100 gram dose is probably more expensive than most people's entire PhD project. Like the methodology in this study was so absurdly insane. And it's probably like most people just like, oh, it's 100 grams of protein. You buy that for two euros <laughs> or three dollars, uh, dollars a week for three dollars in uh, uh, at the store. But it's like in, insane how expensive this study was. So you're limited with what you can do. Um, 
because like rather than all these doses, we wanted the doses that we test. We wanted to measure muscle protein synthesis every possible way, digestion in every possible way, whole body protein synthesis, bunch more. Um, but yeah, the more measurements, the less money for doses. So we picked zero, just what happens if you don't have anything. We took 25 grams, which is kind of the, the yeah, upper limit of what's normally assumed to be the maximum dose, 20 to 25. And then 100 grams for the simple reason, uh, again, a barbecue. Uh, we did just a simple pilot in the lab. And we looked at what, uh, like, let's call it the fitness bro guys, how much they could comfortably eat. Like not overfeeding, like, oh, I need to hit 150. Just how much protein would a bro eat uh, without truly forcing this? So someone who likes protein and fitness, and that ended up being about 100 grams. So we thought 100 grams is like in a normal setting, like, no, it's not what you're going to consume every meal, but that's more or less the practical upper limit of what can be consumed. And the only goal was just to test that dogma is 25 all you need. It's not to say you need 100 grams. Maybe at 50 grams, there is a maximum. We can get into that, but that's mm -hmm. not the purpose. The main purpose was just to challenge 20, 25 is all you need. And the exercise, describe the exercise protocol real quickly. Uh, it was fairly basic. It was just a whole body exercise, uh, resistance training. So from top of my hat, it was, I think, four sets of... Um, leg press, four sets of leg extension, uh, I think three sets of uh, uh, pull downs and three sets of chest press. Um, and um, more or less everything was like one rep in reserve. It was still right. volatile uh, fatigue, uh, but under some encouragements so are not yelling like, come on, come on. But of course, if you're a subject and the researcher is like, you know, give it everything you got. Maybe one rep left in the tank. Most people go pretty hard. So it depends a little bit on the subject. Somewhere between one and two reps in the tank. Some people hit failure on a set here and there. So are you of the opinion that it's total protein intake over the course of the day that's paramount and timing and distribution is, is secondary? Uh, yes. So I think that uh, that concept has been around for a long time, uh, that it's probably the most important, how much protein you get in a day. Uh, and then there's some debate to what the importance of protein distribution is, where some people are like, ooh, this is really important because, again, you oxidize everything once your meal is too big. Um, and then some people are like, it probably doesn't matter at all. Um, I think with this study, if you look at the evidence, like what supported that, let's call it theory of protein distribution, uh, it's not really the long-term studies that supported it. Again, there are some limitations in long-term studies where you want tons of subjects before you can clearly see something. So I was always like, maybe once we have a lot more data at some point, we can do a meta-analysis and then we'll see a small benefit. But really, the only evidence was that mechanistic acute work where the idea is if you consume too much, you start oxidizing it all. Um, and that just our data just showed that isn't true at all. So in my mind, most of the argument in favor of protein distribution is gone. Does that mean in practice uh, you should not distribute your protein intake? 
Well, I don't think it's super important that you do, but if you're a competitive bodybuilder, why wouldn't you? Like, it's not that difficult. Um, but again, how much of an added value will it have? I think very little. So we, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, six of one half dozen of another. If uh, like, for instance, Tony works with a lot of professional fighters and they train, they train certainly more than once a day, right. uh, sometimes hours per day. So speculate a little on if you have someone consuming 200 grams of protein a day, um, whether it matters if they're doing 100 in the morning, 100 in the evening versus 50-50, 50-50 spread out throughout the day. Will it, will it matter? Hey, here's the thing. Will it matter from a muscle protein synthesis standpoint or a recovery standpoint? Or how about this? It might inhibit their hunger so they're not thinking about food. Instead, they're thinking about training. Uh, I, like Richie, will be the judge of this, I guess. But the first thing that came to mind is Good luck eating 100 grams of protein and getting a liver kick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like 100 grams Spot of protein. On, on, yes, it's like, yeah, you'll leave, you'll it's, lose 50 grams right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like unless it's from like maybe uh, easy digestible protein powder, you're, yep. you're not going to eat 100 grams of protein anyway. So these are very fun academic <laughs> exercises. Uh, but yeah, anyone who, who works in practice know that Protein is relatively uh, tough on the stomach and too big of a meal is just not going to sit well uh, with training. Now, let's ignore that for a moment. Do I think it matters for your physiology? Again, I would say, uh, I would say the higher your protein intake is, the smaller the chance that protein distribution has an added effect. Because, uh, like, if you look, for example, at my uh, data, just with the higher, with the more protein, um, just plasma amino acids rise much longer and they stay elevated much longer. Uh, imagine if you have even more protein. So, ultimately, the goal of protein, like protein quality, is another discussion you can have. But ultimately, the goal, well, I guess the main goal is to provide essential amino acids to your tissues so they can. Ha they have the building blocks and the signals for optimal functioning. Um, as long as you eat enough protein, that protein is going to digest during the whole day. So you will always have them available and your body has no clue whether that protein just came in on your empty stomach or that it came six hours ago. And only now it's through your gut, which, well, your stomach, I should say, and, and it's been there for a couple of hours. Like, there's no difference uh, until it comes into the circulation. It was never accessible to your muscle anyway. Right. Now, again, in practice, I wouldn't know why an athlete wouldn't want to distribute it. Like, it's so easy to distribute your protein. Um, as you're aware, I've done uh, quite some research on pre-sleep protein. Mm -hmm. And back then, everyone's like, you're pushing protein distribution that doesn't really matter, which is really fun because now I'm sort of on the other, uh, on the other camp. Um, but I'm like, pre-sleep protein is the easiest habit. Like usually you're at home, like it's the easiest to just take one or two scoops of protein. It's more protein in the day. You possibly some distribution advantages. Why wouldn't you do it? So 
from a practical point of view, why wouldn't you aim for some protein distribution? Now, what I don't want is that people stressing and setting their alarm and in the middle of the night, I, I have to eat again or I have to run out of class or work because you need to eat every four hours. I think my study really shows that is absolutely not necessary. But in practice, why wouldn't you try to have some reasonable protein distribution? Makes sense. Yeah. And and one other quick question. And by the way, inspired by you and your team, I don't think you can see it. Oh, there you go. I just had about 75 grams. So I want to thank you for that. Excellent. It's, yeah, it's light, light work. I expected more from you, but <laughs> training the guts. Like... We'll get up there. We'll get up there. So, um, and so with the, to our best assertion, even in a, a small, like with a lot of the fighters, as you know, you're in weight class athletes. If there was a caloric deficit, we still would probably make the same assertions regarding protein distribution and timing versus a large bolus. Might that be correct? Or um, yeah, so that 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 triggers a few topics in my head. So uh, obviously, with a lower caloric uh, uh, intake in general, there's just more pressure on your protein to use it right. as a as a fuel. Um, Generally, you, you because you're in a more catabolic situation, you try to keep your protein uh, up. But that just the general concept that protein distribution doesn't really have much added value. I, I don't see why uh, energy status per se uh, would impact that. Okay. Now, what, what is interesting is like if you ask me, what do I think? This is super not academic, but... My guess is that probably your protein requirements scale based on the amount of lean body mass you have. Like that makes so much sense. In mm -hmm. practice, there's not that much good evidence for it that a big guy needs all that much more protein than a small guy. Now, that's partly because most of the studies are, there's not that many studies and they're not all that good. Um, but I'm not like what my gut feeling is based on the data I've seen, it, it's not like a guy that's two times as big needs two times the amount of protein. Right. He probably needs more protein. So what does that mean in practice? That means that smaller athletes, they almost surely have enough protein because yeah, almost any amount is, is good for them. I would just say if you're an athlete that's bigger than let's say the average subject in a study, you probably need a little bit more, but it's not like, oh, I'm, you know, 20% heavier. I also need 20% more than the studies recommend. Right. Did you address the concept of, you know, people argue about whether there's an upper limit. I think even the title of your paper suggested there is no upper limit. Um, pragmatically, there has to be a limit. And, and also physiologically, you know, your gut and your, you know, small intestine can only handle so much. So, I guess address that issue both theoretically and pragmatically um, that there has to be a limit somewhere. I mean, there's a limit to height. There, actually, I don't know. I was about to say there's a limit to body weight, but I'm not sure that's true because humans <laughs> seem to be getting larger. But there has to be some sort of digestive limit. Yeah. So, uh, so this kind of gets into the debate, like how should a title of a paper uh, be? So I, I want to start with a big disclaimer. If you read the paper, uh, first of all, 
I know for sure I wrote the longest limitation section you'll ever see in a paper like this. <laughs> so when someone says like, ooh, the title is kind of hypey, I guess it is, but there's no way you mistake what I mean if you actually read the paper. Yeah, right. um, then number, um, number two, when you read the whole paper, you'll see that nowhere in the paper I say, so this paper means you need to eat this much protein in a meal. It, nowhere does it say this means this is how much protein you need to consume in a day. I don't even say protein distribution is nonsense. All I say is, hey, maybe protein distribution, that concept, maybe you can be a little bit more flexible. And if you know you won't have your next meal in the next couple of hours, you probably want to increase your, your meal so you can last. Like that is the main practical lesson from this paper. Uh, now, is there an upper limit? Of course there is. If there wasn't, I would be Ronnie Coleman. I would just slam protein shakes all day. <laughs> and that's just not going to work, uh, unfortunately. So yes, there is, an, there is an, uh, an upper limit. Now that might, might be related to several things. On one hand, uh, just like you mentioned, a practical upper limit of how much you can consume. Um, again, as, as I mentioned, like we could pretty comfortably consume 100 grams of protein in a barbecue, but it's not like you'll do that six hours later again. So there's just so much you can eat on a day. Also, Jordan, I'm sorry to interrupt. Have you ever watched the uh, Nathan hot dog eating contest? No. Oh, okay. Well, not, not that I would recommend you watch it, but in, in, in Long Island, New York, every year, they have a hot dog eating contest. And Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, but in 10 or 12 minutes, they can eat 70 to 80 hot dogs. I think Joey Chestnut's record's in the mid-80s. Yes. Yeah. So 80 yeah. hot dogs. With buns, by the way. You know, with buns, right. Dude, they dip them in water, right? They so, do. Yes. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes. And I've always wondered, and you might have a you might be able to speculate on this. What happens to all? I mean, I know hot dogs have a lot of fat, but there's still a lot of protein in 80 something hot dogs. What happens to all of that? And Professional eaters, and I don't know if you have professional eaters in Holland, but we got professional eaters here. So that's that's cool. We might, they, uh, yeah, they I, would be. I, a, I never really thought of that concept, but it, like we might have to recruit them for a set for a study. Yeah. Like I doubt we'll get a huge sample size, but it would be cool just to see, just to test some concepts. Um, but my my expectation there is that they would be like the snake; they would just be digesting that food mm -hmm. for. A couple of days. I don't know if do you have any links to them. Like it would be interesting to just shoot them an emails. Like how much do you eat in the next two days? That might mm -hmm. give some indication whether their gut is full and sends the signals to the brain. Yo, we're full. Just stop eating. Um, what's also very interesting is uh, because I, I read all that snake research for this is that uh, the snake uses, like in the first day, most of the protein synthesis is to increase his gut, like the villi in his gut. They go completely nuts. They're like, oh, we have to digest this insane meal. So all the organs start growing. It's not like, oh, all the protein is going to the to the muscle of, of the snake. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, here you, in terms of... Uh... Real life, you know, snake consumption. We have pythons here that are consuming whole alligators. Yeah, yeah, alligators and, whole. Yeah, and it's it's actually a problem in Florida because pythons are not indigenous to Florida, and they're they're actually causing issues with alligators because, yeah, because you have videos of 
you see a python and it looks like there's an alligator basically inside the python mm -hmm. it's it's absolutely amazing um well let me ask you this the uh i think Stu phillips he's a big fan of the 1.6 grams per kilo total protein intake per day i'm someone who thinks you could certainly go up to one gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo depending on who you know depending on the person depending on the the athlete now if you're dealing with high-end athletes, whether they're elite uh, endurance athletes, run, bike, or swim, or in this case, elite fighters who train probably harder than 99.99% of humanity, do you think 1.6 is enough? Uh, it's it's a difficult question. So I'll, I'll just share some of my thoughts. Um if you look at, so that 1.6 is based on that meta regression data from Stu. And uh, what they essentially do there is they look at all the studies on protein supplementation and then at what protein intake did protein supplementation, did it appear to uh, stop resulting in additional gains? Um, and then they do a breakpoint analysis to determine that. Now, when you look at that graph, like I've done a uh, breakpoint analysis and my uh, my R squares are like 0.95 and higher. And I'm like, sweet. When you look at that graph, you see like, okay, if I have to make a very rough estimation, the model says 1.6. Uh, I would consider that a good starting point to do more studies, but it's not like, oh, see, when we design everything, like when we show all the data in it, it's very clear that at 1.6, everything stops. Now, it's a lot of dots over the place. So I see it as a, in general, like people love to say like, no, you have to look at meta-analysis. They're the highest form of research, but that's not really how it works. It's like when we throw a lot of different stuff together, then this comes out and that's then a starting point to design better studies and it keeps reiterating. It's not like the meta-analysis and we're done. So I would consider that 1.6 is a good starting point to thinking what the maximum could be. Now, we've done a study in Dutch uh, from very talented young athletes all the way to some Olympic athletes. We didn't, uh, we've done a study where we looked at their protein intakes and then in a... a small sample of them we use nitrogen balance to see hey what you reported with uh 24 hour questionnaires how does that stack up with the nitrogen in your urine and it seemed like they underreported protein intake by 25% uh that's athletes that's interesting my assumption would be that an athlete is better aware of the protein in his diet than let's say college kids let's call it that so that just makes me think if athletes are already underreporting protein intake by 25%, maybe that like the subjects in that meta-analysis where usually habitual protein intake is based on uh, self-reported data, maybe that is also 25% underreported. So maybe you shift that up 25%. Is that true? I don't know, but good thought though. Yeah. seems very possible. Yeah. Now, then the other question is, how much higher do you need to go and does it uh, does it truly benefit the elite athletes? For example, you've done some studies with higher uh, protein intakes. There, I am the other uh, kind of skeptical in the sense that I don't know, but I would be 
skeptical that subjects truly eat that amount of protein for that duration. I think they might be over-reporting, yes, yes, Dr. Professor Antonio, yes, I ate everything. I don't know if they truly ate. Like, so I'm, I'm skeptical of normal people because uh, they under-report. And then I think people who are on those extreme diets, they're probably over-reporting to make you proud. Um, but then we get back to the question, are higher protein intakes beneficial? I would say possibly like this this again really comes down to practical considerations like how much effort is it to consume a little bit more protein what are the downsides i don't think there are many downsides in healthy elite athletes even if it's just for the peace of mind try to consume a little bit more protein now if your athlete is reporting i hate all these protein shakes you're giving me that's probably not worth it but i would at the least experiment with it yeah i know uh from the self-reports, because I've done a lot of those chronic sub, uh, protein supplementation studies, I would say that, as you mentioned, almost everyone under-reports, except one group, male bodybuilders. If you ask a male bodybuilder what they eat, they know exactly to the gram, carbs, fat, and protein. So I guarantee you they weren't over-reporting because those were male bodybuilders, particularly in the, in the we did a two-year follow-up. And knowing those guys, I know a lot of them personally, there was one guy who was averaging, I think, 400 grams a day. And he was getting 400 grams a day. So I think uh, unless you're dealing with male bodybuilders, it is true that you're, the population, I, people are just not good at remembering what they eat. I think that's part of the issue. Um, yeah. So, so it's two things. It's the, the remembering is just difficult. Like, People kind of know what they had for dinner, but they forget the snacks and especially the drinks. Um, but then the other aspect is uh, 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 socially desired answers, where you see that obese people tend to over-report, of course. Uh, they're mm -hmm. not forgetting their meals. They, uh, um, they just know that they eat too much, so they, they intentionally leave it out because... They yeah, they under-report. They, they may be ashamed of it. So I'm just wondering, like, it might be different if you have a bit of a personal uh, relationship with those bodybuilders, but bodybuilders, they know or at least think that they have to consume very high amounts of protein. So I could, even if there was one day less, they're like, I'm not admitting, like in bodybuilding, like, you know, hardcore, that's like, that's their lifestyle. So I doubt if a bodybuilder slipped up for one day, that they would admit it to you. Although maybe if they, you know, if you have a bit of a relationship with them, then they would probably be honest. Uh, and then the other thing is, depending on how the study is designed, um, subjects kind of change their behavior in when they know they have to keep a, a dietary record, for example. So that's an advantage of a surprise 24-hour recall at like, with a trained dietitian, you should be able to really drag all the information out of them. But if you just give them a dietary record, people are like, no, I'm not going to eat that because yeah, it's a hassle to write it down. So it's, it's so interesting to me that I use like the most expensive research methodologies to measure essentially like throwing a little bit of salt on a beach and then a year later counting exactly how much salt there is. We can do that. But then in the human body with, you know, where the amino acids go. But dietary intake, 
we struggle measuring that in humans. That's mm -hmm. just funny to me. Like, it should be the simplest thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there are uh, you know certainly limitations in doing the chronic work. Um, what are your thoughts though on? Because you have a lot of acute data. You do a feeding. I mean, and others as well. Phillips Lab. You do a feeding. You measure MPS over X number of hours. The question I always get, particularly from bodybuilders or strength power athletes, uh, is, well, how does that apply to me training for years, eating mixed meals multiple times throughout the day, a single feed of just protein doesn't in any way match what life actually is? And that's the that's the common criticism of these acute feeding studies. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there's obviously uh some truth to that uh and then like well especially online like usually people are like in one or two camps like oh it's mechanistic work so it doesn't count at all uh or they blindly believe it because well uh i've heard more about dr trommela and uh dr phillips and they're you know they're everything they do is good right and neither of those approaches is how you how you should think of this so uh, in the ideal world, any concept you've tested in an acute study, you want to verify in a long-term study. The issue with the long-term studies is that most long-term studies are not long-term studies. They're like four to six week studies with a handful of subjects. And uh, for example, people just overestimate the effect of protein in general. If you look at studies where there's protein supplementation, about 80% of them doesn't even show that protein supplementation increases muscle mass. Now, I think we all agree, yes, protein supplementation can increase muscle mass, but it's simply because if your study is too short, one group gains 100 grams, the other group gains 200 grams, and you can't detect that difference. Now, if you follow those groups for a year, then it would be like two kilograms versus uh, four kilograms. You can detect that difference. So long-term studies are a thing of beauty, but they should truly be long-term with sufficient subjects and um, good measurement techniques. If you do that, that is the holy grail, of course, but very difficult, especially in athletes, because why would the government ever invest money in athletes. So that's the challenge with the long-term studies. Now with the acute studies, at the end of the day, you're doing something pretty artificial. Um, so you should never blindly trust a concept from acute study. Um, so you have to, you know, you'll have to do some extrapolation. And for that, you kind of have to understand the method, like something like there's plenty of studies where I think like, interesting, I don't expect it to translate. And then there's a lot of things where I think, oh yeah, that might translate as well. It's, it's difficult to just in, in 10 seconds explain how that works. You just need a lot of experience with uh, the method, so to speak. But so I'll give you an example. Uh, if I give you guys a liter of water and then we put you on a Redexa, all of a sudden you've gained a kilogram of lean mass. Now, we all know that's an artifact of say a DEXA scan. Um, as long as you know how DEXA scans work, you can completely avoid that limitation. Right. Now, if you give someone a liter of water 
then you measure muscle protein synthesis, you'll see zero effect. Now, does that mean that the muscle protein synthesis studies are better? No, they have a different set of assumptions. Uh, if you do studies where those assumptions are violated, then you know you can throw it in the trash. And the same with long-term studies. So what people really need is a good, like my pet peeve in science is when things don't align, they pick, oh, I like this the best, or at least I can wrap my head around this the best. So this is the best. And then we ignore everything else. If observational animal data, even cell studies, acute studies, long-term studies, if they don't align, what you should say is, hmm, these data don't seem to align. In one of those types of research, we're missing something. How are we going to align this? So that's basically what I did here. I said like these long-term intermittent fasting studies don't see much of a difference in muscle mass. These acute studies strongly suggest there is, you only need 20 grams. One of the two, something doesn't seem to add up. In this case, I thought in the acute studies, they're missing something. Namely, you have to measure longer. And I think that's the approach people should take. They should like, I know if I was younger and listening to this, you want to just take, you want to have like a short answer, like this is the best type of research, just follow that. No, every type of research has pros and cons. And unless you know the pros and cons, you have no clue if a single study is good or bad. Let me ask you this. What um, If you were to do a follow-up to this study um, using a different protein source, would you find anything different, particularly if you use um, a plant-based source? Would, would you think the results would be different? Um, so again, this study was designed as proof of principle that that 20 grams, 25 grams is not all you need in a meal. So I'm 99% certain that that general concept would be the same with a plant-based protein. Uh, that also with a plant-based meal, your total anabolic response as well as the duration would be longer than with uh, 25 grams. Having said that, if you would do everything the same, just switch the type of protein, uh, I could see that the total anabolic response would be smaller with the plant-based protein compared to uh, the animal protein. Having said that, um, it's very similar as with protein distribution. Ultimately, the goal of protein intake is just provide your body with all the building blocks you need. Once you have 100 grams in a meal, even if it's a lower quality type of protein, like let's say the, the protein quality is 15% lower then effectively you you ate 85 grams of highly quality right, right. protein. So what what are we talking about? Like you're set, so to, so to speak. But yeah, so as a general concept, yes, I think protein choice can make a little bit of, a, uh, of an impact on the anabolic response, but the higher your protein intake, the less relevant that is. If you're a vegan and you eat uh, a lot of protein, it probably doesn't matter. In practice, the, the 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 issue with uh, veganism is that a lot of them eat less protein in general, and it's lower quality. Then things become an issue. If they all ate infinite amounts of protein, uh, like the, the, the amounts you give in your study, it really doesn't matter. Like they have everything they could possibly need. Yeah. Uh, just a quick question to you, and that somewhat follows up on that. And I apologize for asking questions that are 
they're mostly assertion, but do we, is there a disparity? Because there's so many genetic differences, right? From person to person uh, that, that, that delineate what their metabolism is. If I put in hundred grams in a group of 25 year olds, a comparable weight, comparable activity level, that rate of breakdown and then the time it reaches the periphery, is that almost a constant from person to person? Or do some people have more protease enzymes? Not that it's gonna make a significant difference over the course of a couple of hours, but I've always wondered what the capacity is for some, some people have an aversion to protein. Is that in part because it is sitting in the gut longer as opposed to somebody else who might have greater protease enzymes and can knock down a 42 ounce porterhouse and they're ready to eat an hour again later. It, it, might there be something with that? Is yeah, well, uh, I, I would say yes. So first of all, like when I have data, I have, of course, data on all the individual subjects. Yes. And then you see the values, you know, there's quite sure. quite a range uh, in that. Um, now, what we do know with protein, uh, especially like the higher quality protein, so most animal uh, proteins, like digestibility, so how much in total you digest and then absorb right. is almost 90% for everyone okay. all of the time, if it's like isolated, not when you start adding in fiber. However, um, one person might be digesting that meal a lot longer than someone else, for example, uh, because they have less digestive enzymes. Now, another example is what you guys just uh, brought up. Uh, I'm not going to put 80 hot dogs in my stomach, right? So there is this concept of in carbohydrates, it's very popular training the gut. Uh, that might apply uh, here as well. Okay. So that brings up another discussion point, which ties in a little bit um, uh, what Jose just uh, mentioned with the acute studies. With an acute study, you'll always have at least some amount where you wonder what happens if I do this more often. So mm -hmm. on one hand, you could speculate if you always do these absurd 100 grams meals, like in my study, we saw almost nothing got burned, wasted. Okay. But if protein becomes a really relatively large uh, percentage of your macronutrient intake, I could see a shift where your body says, well, we have so much of this, we might as well start using it as a fuel. So there's no guarantee that if you keep doing this forever, your metabolic response is the same. Now, you can also um, speculate the other way that your body thinks, this is awesome. We're always getting a lot of protein. Let's upregulate uh, our capacity to use it. This brings me back to the snake where if a snake eats one of these large meals, the first thing the body says, this is awesome. We're going to upregulate the gut so we can digest it all. So who knows? Maybe you become more anabolic. Right. Like your body like, wants, oh, this is awesome. We have like so much awesomeness coming in. Let's optimize anabolism because things will always be good or it might be the opposite. Like this is unnecessary to keep right. doing this. You never know for sure. And that's why you always need a combination of research. Great. Now you did some work on, uh, it was pre-sleep protein ingestion on mitochondrial protein synthesis. Is that correct? Yeah. What would you, and obviously that would matter particularly to endurance athletes. What would you speculate as to what would happen if an endurance athlete did that chronically? Well, what you hope that happens is uh, that over time that would increase either mitochondrial uh, abundance and or function. So theoretically, more mitochondria is a higher capacity to use fuels. 
Uh, and basically the way I think of endurance exercises, you're just a human furnace and whoever can burn the most fuel for the longest will win. Um, so that is the theoretical benefit. Now, am I convinced that will happen? Not necessarily. Like, um, it seems like the uh, the main limiting factor in endurance is more in the cardiovascular aspect, not necessarily in the muscle metabolism, how much can be uh, oxidized there. Um, so it's, it's really difficult to say. Like, I think that the benefits of protein are not limited to the mitochondria. That's just that study. My assumption would be that, uh, for example, in this, this study we just discussed with 100 grams of protein, we very clearly saw that with more protein, uh, plasma protein synthesis would also be higher. Based on that, you would expect that the pre-sleep protein would also increase plasma proteins that carry oxygen, which might be more important than the mitogonia, um, but that is speculation, of course. Hey, we, uh, we're running out of time, but I want to get two last questions in. One, um, future research, let the audience know. And two, when you're giving advice, so people are going to ask you for advice because you do a lot of great work, particularly with protein. Um, what advice do you give? And let's just deal with two populations, strength power athletes and endurance athletes. Uh, protein intake, carb intake, fat intake. I know you're a protein guy, but I'm sure you're asked about carbs and fat as well. In terms of dosing per day, what do you tell them? Uh, okay, so let's start with um, the the strength athletes. I would like, as a starting point, I would usually start with at 1.6. We discussed that. I don't think that's the holy grail, but I think that's a good starting uh, point. And from there, ideally, I would uh, over time increase protein intake and just see how the athlete responds. So I see like, ideally I want a large percentage of caloric intake in protein because I, there's pretty much only upside. Of course, uh, you have to take into account carbohydrates and fat. Now for a strength athlete, uh, I, I wouldn't worry that much about carbohydrate and fat. I don't like ketogenic uh, diets, so I wouldn't go low carb, but I would leave it up to... Um, uh, to the preference of the athlete. Now for endurance, it's a little bit different. I would still use that starting point of 1.6 uh, gram per kilogram per day, probably not all that much higher for an endurance athlete, but their carbohydrates become a lot more important. But there you really have to distinguish between what your goal, is it performance in the moment or is it training adaptations? There's some reasonable, uh, reasonable evidence that a high carbohydrate availability during training sessions kind of reduces the need for training adaptations. Um, so training at least once a week with a low carbohydrate availability. So ideally um, overnight fasted and then a morning training without any carbohydrates. And only after that, you start to refuel. Um, but during actual exercise, during performance, when you want to win, uh, there you absolutely want to maximize carbohydrate uh, oxidation rates. Uh, the way to do it is to have carbohydrate intake from 60 to all the way to 120 uh, grams per hour. Now, 120 grams per That's hour is absurd. You need to train the gut. It's a, uh, well, too long for now. Uh, <laughs> and what's important there is that you consume your uh, carbohydrates as a mixture of 
glucose and mm -hmm. fructose because they are absorbed uh, in different transporters. So your uptake rate is, uh, is higher. Um, but again, that's only during an event where you want to uh, maximally perform. And maybe very quickly for Richie, that multiple transportable carbohydrates concept is also pretty interesting for glycogen repletion. For example, if uh, your athletes are doing a weight cut for weighing in, um, that same concept uh, applies there. Uh, and again, fat I see as this boring nutrient where you probably don't want to go under 20% of your energy intake, but it's more you play, play around with it. And usually, unless you avoid it in practice, most athletes end up uh, above that anyway. So yes, I'm very uh, protein-centric. That's the first one I always fill in from the macronutrients. Then carbohydrates as needed and fat more or less uh, fills in itself as long as you stay above that 20% energy percentage. Yeah, let me, uh, Tony, before you comment, just, Duran, uh, I want to tell you what I do. My, my wife is a national class cyclist. She does time trials. She specializes in time trials, 5K and 10K. Um, her carb intake is maybe three grams per kilo. Her protein intake is three grams per kilo and her fat intake is about one. And, and again, this is an N of one, but since I know her, I, you know, I live with her. She does better on very high protein intakes but with, with a couple of things. One, her body composition is better because if she's eating that protein, she tends to be eating less carbs. Um, so her body comes better. And two, she says she just physically feels better. She says she feels lighter. Um, but again, a 5K and 10K uh, time trial, it's not that, I mean, it's fast. Yeah, that, that's also like I would classify that more towards distinct spectrum right. than to the truly endurance. Uh, like that, that are the exercise durations where we don't recommend the high carbohydrate intakes, not even during uh, yeah. exercise. Yeah. So I just wanted to, Tony, I didn't know if you had a comment about, you know. No, it's just, it was just, I was just happy to hear you on starting with one six for the endurance athlete, which is now becoming a little bit more accepted. It's usually a one, two, a one, one, because you're, you know, you had these absurd numbers in the past of, uh, I don't want to say they're absurd, but I mean, there aren't that many people that I could eat at 10 to 12 grams of carbs per kilogram, right? And if doing so, that pushes your protein at some given point that you, you know, I mean, you're eating 4,000 calories and carbs per day. So that pushes your protein down almost 0.8 to one. So anyway, it was good to hear that uh, a one six, 1.6 in the endurance athlete is a very solid start and a very good protein intake as uh, what was considered previously. So. so I am absolutely a science nerd and there's nothing more like than the complicated calculations that probably a max 10 people in the world understand. But I know enough about practice that like, like, like we've done studies on uh, macronutrient intake in athletes and endurance athletes, almost all of, on average, they ate 1.5 grams uh, of protein per kilogram per day anyway. So anyone who comes right. with this recommendation of 1.2 is actually saying, oh, you should eat less than you're already doing. <laughs> right. So I'm like, where, where does this come from? And make right. notes. And on top of that, that 1.5 gram, that is from that study where we saw that the ones we tested appear to underreport by 25%. Okay. Right. There is one point, so unless you want to put out the message, no, you actively need to avoid protein, which <laughs> I don't think is beneficial. So 
agree. Uh, yeah, occasionally doing a study and actually trying to track um, micronutrient intake, for example, gives a lot of perspective. And I think uh, the tracer studies are cool, but again, the more types of research you do, uh, just the better overall picture you can form. Yeah, I, you know, I love that you do a lot of these acute studies, super expensive. I don't think people appreciate that, you know, and also trying to combine it with some of the chronic data and also, you know, real world data working with athletes. And you'll see that it never isn't, it's never a clean fit. You're sort of trying to figure out, okay, at the end of the day, I want the athlete to do well, but I'll see what the literature says and try to, you know, modify it for the athlete. But, uh, I'll tell you this, Jordan, you do some amazing work. I love what you Agreed. do. Agreed. By the way, if uh, for those of you on Instagram, you, your, your Instagram page is Nutrition Tactics. Is that correct? Yeah. It's, it's a great page. You haven't been on it for a while, though. It'd be nice if you put some new stuff on there. Um, <laughs> Just to, I, uh, when I started doing this study, the, the, we call it the barbecue study, uh, at that moment, I decided I'm no longer doing any podcast. Before that, I was quite active because I kind of enjoy it. But I was like, from the moment I started, like, I have this hypothesis that this 20 grams is not optimal. It's still what's kind of evidence-based. Do I really want to tell that? So I just uh, stopped <laughs> appearing on podcasts. I still was, you know, kind of active on the social media, for example, Instagram. Um, but it's been so busy lately, but I'm... I'm I'm going to pick it up. Don't worry. I'm, okay. I'm following any, you, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> any new projects? Could you tell the audience anything new coming up? Are you going to pre present um, ECSM or? So I'm, uh, I'm, I, I set up a new technique in our lab that can uh, estimate protein requirements based on uh, on breath analysis, pretty much. Oh, cool. um, so it's non-invasive, wow. um, which will allow us to do a lot of work because. Usually our studies are with muscle biopsies. Uh, good luck getting professional athletes to do that. Um, so this, with this new tool, it gives us, uh, you know, more opportunities to study understudied populations. So the, the, where I'm using it now is on the intensive care because oh, wow. these people are fighting for their life. Uh, you're not going to go with biopsy needles while they're in a coma. And then if they make it, they wake up. It's like, what the heck did you do? So just an example how it opens up new opportunities. But bodybuilders, elite athletes, all those things uh, will come on the radar now. So hopefully, um, yeah, using that technique in every possible um, population. Uh, if there's uh, Dutch bodybuilders, you're probably up next. <laughs> Tony, any last words? This has been really great with Jordan. I love this. Well, that's that's my only words. Fantastic. Um, very just incredible information and incredible work of which I learned from. And uh, and thanks for bringing it to us and bringing it to our industry. And truly, it's excellent work and needed. And we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. And uh, I want to thank you for appearing on the Sports Science Dudes. And we certainly look forward to any new cool science you're doing. So. Once again, thank you. I know it's late where you are, and it's we appreciate your time. So thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you.